Welcome to the Hot Hacker Podcast number 373 with Scott Augenbaum. Um, he's retired FBI uh, cybersecurity, and we'll be talking tonight about some cybersecurity adventures and stuff like that. Uh, look for a talk from me from Aaron Bregg uh, on uh, cell phone hacking and other interesting topics on his charity uh, podcast from today. And I'll be speaking with ICE in January. Um, so without further ado, Scott, why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about what you've done and, and what you're doing. Well, great. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, everyone, for having me on your show here today. Uh, I'm Scott Augenbaum, if you can tell by the enthusiasm in my voice and the big smile on my face. It's because I'm retired from the FBI. And if you would have told me some 34 years ago that this kid from Brooklyn, New York, who barely graduated high school, raised by a single parent in New York back in the 80s. And, you know, one of the words not to describe my mom was helicopter parent, because when I went from seventh grade to eighth grade, she was all excited. She bought, you know, I, I was addicted to video games as a kid. So she went out and she bought me a Timex Sinclair computer computer probably about 81 to 83 and i couldn't get past the second page in the manual and uh that was kind of the story of my life uh you know she was excited when i went to community college and i didn't have the heart to tell her in order to get into community college all you needed was a high school diploma and not be arrested for a felony arrested's the key word I graduate with a 2.27 grade point average. And one of the things I can tell you, uh, Mike, is when you have that kind of GPA, the world is not knocking down your door with opportunities. Exactly. However, my mom had a grand plan, which was to keep me out of jail. And so she filled out an application for me when I was 20 years old to become a file clerk with the FBI. And I start my job on September 6th 1988, 20 years old, onto my journey. And that's where it all starts. So I love when, you know, I sit down with all these guys and they're like, hey, I wanted to be a cop since I was a kid. Not me, man. You know? I feel you. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to, uh, to that story because I barely graduated high school myself. Um, I think, uh, as a matter of fact, I had to take uh, some extra math classes because I couldn't pass algebra. Uh, and later on became a cryptologist in the military. Like, doesn't make any sense. Well, um, <laughs> I get it. Hey, listen, yeah. you know, and here, here, here I am. So I get uh, now I'm around. The, I'm surrounded by a lot of positive role models. I'm 20 years old and I'm like, wow, like, look at these guys. They're FBI agents. This is so great. And I finally have all these father figures in my life that explain to me, you can't go through life somewhere between mediocre and below average. <laughs> And I go back to school at night. I work my tail off. I get a 3.8 grade point average. I start working on an MBA in finance and technology at Fordham University, 1992. I'm an early adapter in technology in the government because I figure out if you take a row of numbers on Microsoft Excel and you add them, you look like a genius. And, and here I am as an early innovator in the government. And then all of a sudden I find a laptop one day and I get this thing in the mail with a floppy disk for America Online and I'm off to the races. And I take a couple of graduate level courses 
And that's where I start my journey in technology. And I'm going to be honest, I don't think it ever got any more advanced than that. And I become an agent in 1994, uh, 26 years old, have you know a four-year degree, three years work-related experience. It's a job I never thought I could get. And I really don't have the demeanor where the world is black and white, where I'm like your ideal law enforcement agent. So I go down to the FBI Academy, I get accepted. And between us, and I know nobody's paying attention, I was so out of my element when I'm at the FBI Academy. And I'm like, holy crap, how am I going to do this? So I worked my ass off. And then I, and I'm excited to go back to New York to work white collar crime. And then I get sent up to Syracuse, New York. Like, well, what, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Syracuse, New York? Cold as hell and close to Canada. Yeah, that's right. 190 inches of snow. But if you ask me to define the role of an FBI agent in 95, here I am, 27 years old, a gun, a badge, a bulletproof vest, the weight of the world on my shoulders. I have a couple of great training agents who explained to me that when you go over and you show your badge, it's probably the first time and only time people are ever going to meet an FBI agent. You got to have a good demeanor and stuff and bank robberies, fugitives, drug dealing, running and gunning. And one of the things I realize is the harder I work, the more bad people I put in jail and the better I feel about myself. Because I'm sure you can relate to that. Like if you're doing your job and you're on fire, how does that make you feel? Excellent. Excellent. It's a motivator. Yeah. And so I didn't join the FBI to work cybercrime. But I get sucked into this world in about 1996 when we do a search warrant on an individual who's trading child pornography. And since I'm the only person in the office who knows what a computer is, and the only reason I know what a computer is, is because of Windows 95. And so by default, I kind of get roped into cyber, which is not the cool and fun, sexy job to have. But I'm doing it a little bit on the time uh, on the side and I'm getting some training and it's kind of cool. And I'm chasing thrill seekers and I'm chasing amateurs. We have two female agents in the office because within the FBI. We have men and women and the two female agents. One of them is on the drug task force force. She's super cool because that's a that's how you identify yourself and what you do. We have another person working healthcare fraud, which is really complex. And I'm chasing teenagers who were trying to hack into the Pentagon to brag to their friends and stuff. And then cyber takes a really, really sinister turn about 99 or so. You remember what, what kind, what's the big differentiator? Do you remember? I mean, a lot of people who are listening probably weren't born then, but do you remember what, what really was going on in the world of the World Wide Web in about 99? Oh, man, all kinds of stuff. We had some of our, our first pieces of malware drifting around. We had uh, high-speed internet that was coming out. There was a lot of... A lot of but there was uh, a game changer, and that was e-commerce. Oh, yeah, e-commerce for sure. E-commerce, because in the old days, you know, when Willie Sutton robbed the bank, he was a famous bank robber. The reporter stuck a microphone in, her fa- in, the, in the face and said, Willie, why do you rob the bank? And he goes, that's where the money is. 
-hmm. Now the money's online. And yep. here I am talking to people in 99, because in nine, you know, people ask us all the time, how did things get so bad? Why is the government not doing enough? 1998, for any of history buffs here, go look up something called PDD 63, which was presidential something directive 63, created the National Infrastructure Protection Center to keep the critical infrastructure of the United States safe from foreign adversaries. And we didn't call it computer crime. And that's in 98. And that's when I got assigned to become working cyber in 98. And then in two, after the events of September 11th changes the FBI forever. And here we are in 2002, the FBI forms a cyber division at FBI headquarters to work on this emerging cyber threat. I go down there in 2003, all my friends make fun of me. They tell me I'm committing career suicide because this cybercrime problem will go away by 2006. Hey, Mike, how's that working for us? It's not working at all. As a matter of fact, I remember in 2004, I actually went to the Hoover building in D.C. to interview for a job to build a sock at the FBI headquarters. Uh -huh. And uh, since then, not a whole lot's changed. We still have the yeah. same cybercrime. Absolutely. So we start working on the FBI on a national cyber strategy in about 2005, because the FBI realizes that the adversaries are overseas. In the old days, bad people did bad things to good people. I worked with state and local cops. We put bad guys in jail. Very simple, very easy. 2005, 2006, first major coordinated phishing attack Hurricane Katrina. All of a sudden, now we're starting to have a majority of the population on email. Let's just start flooding them with fake requests for money. Boom. All being traced back to the former Soviet Union. I get to Nashville, and, and I'm just kind of laying out a timeline here because I want to do a couple of things. I want to lay the foundation for people just through my eyes and through what I realized. So I get to Nashville in 2007. The FBI is part of the National Cyber Strategy, forms cyber task forces in all 56 field offices throughout the United States. We start hiring the best and the brightest in about 2005, 2006. They start getting a lot of money. We start partnering with state and local agencies. I come here in 2007 and I'm in Nashville. So I'm dealing with all the large healthcare, Vanderbilt University, FedEx, AutoZone, Bridgestone, Nissan, 26 publicly traded companies. I'm going out and I'm having discussions with them. 2007, 2008, Brian Krebs, who was a very young reporter for the Washington Post at the time, releases a story that we in law enforcement all know but we can't talk about called the Russian Business Network Bulletproof Hosting 2008. I'm going around and I'm establishing liaison and contact with all my big domain partners, as I like to call them, because part of the FBI, we're trying to establish contact with who are our potential targets. And I am asking them how many of you guys are concerned 
about Russian organized crime being the number one threat to the financial services sector in 2008, because that was what the FBI released. And Mike, how do you think people reacted to me in 2008 when I make that statement? 2008, they probably thought that you were uh, fantasizing about the Cold War back in the 70s. Absolutely. So when we start talking about Cold War, that's about the time from 2008 to 2013 is what I'd like to call the silent war by the People's Republic of China against us. And now we are starting to see major intrusions between 2008 until 2013, especially where I am in healthcare. And it culminates to the first time we actually see the Chinese government steal healthcare records in 2014, community health systems right in my neck of the woods. It's the first time the Chinese government, now the Chinese government's getting in, into everything between that, but they're very, very stealthy. And all of a sudden, what do we discover? On our top secret computer between me and you, we use Google and we found a report by one of the big four accounting firms that said, that, that realized that China had a five-year strategic plan. And by 2020, they were gonna be the world's leading innovator in healthcare technology without spending money on research and development. So how do you become the world's leading, uh, the world's leading uh, innovator without R&D? It's easy. You, uh, you know, I did a Google search and we found a Blackbird from the Air Force in a Chinese backyard. They just clone. They take yeah. the, the plans and, and use it as their own. OK, no. So here's what well, here, here's what I see happening. So probably about 2000, you know, to 2010, all the clear defense, the Pentagon buttons up. They lock themselves down. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, the big giant cleared defense contractors lock themselves down. So what do the bad guys do? They start going after the smaller ones and the smaller ones and the smaller ones. And that's when we start dealing with something today, which is a buzzword, but we've been dealing with it for supply decades. Chain. Yeah, supply chain threats. And I'm going out after this because when we start dealing with risk management, and I'm not an expert in risk management, but it's threats times vulnerabilities. We can control vulnerabilities but we can't control threats. We can acknowledge threats, but you can't control a threat. So when I'm sitting down and I'm talking to healthcare in 2014 and 15, and I ask them, what, what's your threat ranking? And I'm talking to risk managers on threats from the People's Republic of China getting into your systems. Again, they look at me like I'm crazy. So 2016, as, and I'm going to go through a little bit of the timeline here, to, because if you want to go back in time and you want to hear one of my presentations from 10 years ago, talking about the same stuff. Yeah, nothing's changed. People say, Scott, you got anything new to talk about? I go, no, no, not at all. It changed 2016. 2016, mm -hmm. introduction of ransomware. Mm -hmm. FBI provides guidance six years ago, the business email compromise. And in 2016, according to Cybersecurity Ventures, which has great facts and figures, the cybercrime problem was a $3 trillion problem. Today, it goes up to a $6 trillion problem. It's 100%. Yep. That number doesn't bother me. 
this number bothers me. The amount of money we keep spending to keep ourselves safe keeps increasing almost at a higher rate as the cyber criminals. So let me ask you, Mike, a question. Mm. What does it mean to you if we keep spending more money and the problem gets worse? What does that mean to you? Two things. Uh, either the attacker's getting smarter or people aren't changing. Okay. Now I'm going to eliminate the attacker getting smarter. Okay. I'm going to take that right off the table because during my career, I interviewed a thousand victims. I looked at them face to face and you know what I discovered? Almost 90% of it easily could have been prevented. They're all doing the same stuff. Okay. So they're not getting smarter. So it means what we're doing is not working. I retire from the FBI, get a lot of job offers. I decide I'm going to follow my passion. And I, if people ask me, what do you do, Scott? I teach individuals and organizations how to reduce their chances of becoming the next cybercrime victim. Now, let me tell you, there's 3,000 former federal law enforcement agencies, agents who still say the same thing. But what do I do? I teach you how to do it without being technical or spending money on additional products and services. And, and that's key, I think, because, you know, doing, a, I, I just did an interview with TechStrong and they said, you know, what do you see the next five years? You know, what, what, what's your, what's your forecast? He said more of the same shit because nothing's changed. People are still doing the same dumb shit. Oh, no, something has changed, Mike. What's that? The information security marketplace is making money hand over fist. Oh, for sure. And cybersecurity. We, we uh, see publicly traded companies. We see VC. But you know what we don't see? We don't see the small businesses. We don't see yeah. the nonprofits. You don't have to deal with, like today, I'm dealing with a manufacturing company that in the old days, we, we, we fell into this false sense of security where all we told people to do is... <laughs> Hey, as long as you're backing up, you're going to be okay. Yeah. But backing up doesn't prevent ransomware. No. And I've now seen the cyber criminals are targeting the backup first. So let's go through the first five years ago. I told organizations, don't ever pay the ransom. Yeah. I can't say that anymore because I'm dealing with an organization. They don't have access to their backups. The cyber criminals got in, deleted the backups, took everything off. And now they exfiltrated the information. So now it's pay and pray. And not only that, but you have a double extortion too. So if someone pays the ransom, chances are you're going to see the same attacker come right back at you. Well, it's not even the same attacker. I've seen companies pay the attack on a Monday, mm -hmm. didn't fix the vulnerability. Okay, and with again. a simple port scan, another group that got it on Wednesday. Yep. And I'm like, okay, here's the rule too. If you're going to pay the ransom, you better fix the vulnerability. Yeah. For and sure. as so I always tell people, my friends who are doing intrusion response work are making money hand over fist. So, so what do you say to the people who have cyber insurance? What, what do you think about the whole cyber insurance industry as a whole? Because I've had to deal with them on multiple occasions when it comes to incident response and Usually their first comment when they get on the phone in incident response is, who are, who's a threat actor and how much do they want? And that's all they're concerned about. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you might find this hard to believe, but the insurance industry never invites me to speak at their conferences. <laughs> because I if 90% of what I dealt with easily could have been prevented, and I sit here and I talk 
to organizations. And I'm like, probably the number one threat we need to deal with is an account compromise, which is not a network-based account, which has very little sophistication. If you can get cyber liability insurance and you do not have two-factor authentication on your email, on your payroll, on your HR platforms, on your marketing platforms, which are all different SaaS platforms outside of the world of IT, call your insurance provider mm -hmm. and ask for a 30-year policy because they don't know how to underwrite it. Yeah, exactly. See, only a guy with a pension can get away with that because... I sit down with the insurance people and I go like this. Are you in the business of selling policies and paying claims? Because I think that's all you're doing. And they kind of get angry at me. And I'm like, they make it so hard because nobody's focusing on the prevention side, holistically looking at things. And all I tell people, if you don't do what I tell you to do for free, doesn't matter what you spend money on because they've all had the best pieces of equipment. I've seen companies buttoned up with the best technology in the world and had their payroll wiped out because they didn't have two factor on their payroll account. I mean, yeah, Kronos just got hit uh, today, as a matter of fact, Kronos timekeeping. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty relevant and that's been around for a long time. I mean, you know, when I look back at, at the payment industry, I, you know, was active as a hacktivist back during Occupy Wall Street and some of the stuff that, that was hanging out there. It's funny when you look at technology as a whole and everybody's trying to get new bells and whistles, but then when you look at their network from an attacker point of view, like they haven't even hardened like the simplest of shit. It's, it's the most vulnerable atmosphere, but yet they want AI. Like AI is going to solve all their problems. Oh yeah, no, and it doesn't really, and it doesn't, doesn't really work that way at all because the way that i say it, this is my thing you're not going to fix a bad business problem with a technology wrapper so and this just brings something up i don't think i had this thought almost in uh 13 years i remember speaking at the natcha conference in nashville in 2007 which is the payment card in 2007 they were looking at me like I was crazy. I, people weren't addressing this. So one of the things that I like to throw out, you know, I go out, I provide training to organizations. I try to de demystify things. I try to take one of the most common questions that people come to me. And a lot of times they go like this. And I like to throw it out like on my little, you know, I like to say, hey, you want me to stress test your intrusion response plan? I can do it over a beer. I, I, and I just walk in and I go, when do you contact law enforcement? So if I throw that scenario out to 10 C-suite members, how many different answers do you think I get? Probably 10. Okay. And they go back and forth and I go, all right. I go, let's start the exercise. Hi, Scott Augenbaum, here's your stuff. Let's start the exercise. Yeah. They go, what do you mean? I go, what? I go, that's intrusion response. Yeah. I would show up at your door and hand you your information and tell you uh, you have a problem. Because there was traffic leaving your network at three o'clock in the morning, going to a command and control server that 
we had some visibility on it. From the command and control server, it went to the mothership. And since I'm an equal opportunity offender, we'll say it either went to China, Russia, or Iran. North Korea. Yeah, North Korea too. We'll throw them into the mix. Or then we'll throw another one in. Maybe we'll say it went to Canada. And, and I would go like this. Here's the time that it occurred. Here is all the coordinates. Can you tell me what left your network? And out of 50 companies, how many companies do you think were able to tell me? None. Zero. And think about it from a, a technical point of view, because now you have your information security person coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you have everyone goes like this. Look, we just approved your $3 million budget or your $10 million budget. And they had zero visibility. Now, let's think about this from an intrusion response point of view. Mm-hmm. All intrusion response, all tabletop exercises occur with somebody coming in and saying, okay, we picked up the phone and we're going to call law enforcement. That doesn't happen anymore. When your data is stolen, a third party tells you, maybe it's us, maybe it's one of the vendors. How are you going to respond to that? Do you, as I like to say in my best New York, do you have your shit together? <laughs> you know, it's a, and it's a good topic that you bring up about um calling law enforcement. So, you know, I've been involved in tons of incidents and very rarely do I hear anybody ever say, when do we contact authorities? You know, it's always, let's try to get out of this as quick as possible and as cheap as possible. Let's not involve law enforcement. Um, And I don't know if that's because of, so back before ransomware, uh, when a company got compromised, I would contact Secret Service FBI and there was a and sometimes dollar. they cared and sometimes you got someone who cared and sometimes you got someone who was like, well, what do you want me to do? Yeah. Oh, or, I see three, go to the black hole. Yeah. Or they would, or they would ask, what's the dollar amount of loss? Well, and, and that becomes very, very tricky. And, you know, yeah. and I built my reputation on, I, I don't, I always return calls and I always sat with organizations and that's what drove me to what I do now because at the end, of, you know, I wrote a book called The Secret to Cybersecurity. And if you're looking to read a good book by an FBI agent who saved the day, put a lot of bad guys in jail and who's really technical, don't read my book. I'm not your guy. Okay? <laughs> Wrong person. But, yeah, but I learned so much. And I would talk to these companies. And I'm going to be honest, I couldn't really help them a lot. But we were able to exchange information and I formed chief information security officers working groups. I had beers and cups of coffee and I was out all the time doing the marketing for my group. And that's why we were very, very successful in Nashville at what we did because we had people and we went over there and if they had a problem, they were calling me before they were calling their attorneys Mm -hmm. because you knew people do business with people they know, like, and trust. And I tried to get that model, but I couldn't recreate that around that. So you should know who your FBI counterpart is. You're going to be able to determine right away. Are you going to, is he going to have a personal interest? Can you get a cell phone? Do you know what to do when this happens? Yeah. And it's, it's really important too. So this whole past year I've focused on 
what do we do to, to change the environment and the threatscape of cybersecurity? And I looked at all the facets that, that we've put in place, progression we've made and things we've fallen down on and failed at. But one thing that we haven't really focused on is people, people and relationships. I think that is a key to every cybersecurity problem is people and relationships. It's not the ones and zeros. That, that stuff has not changed that much. We think that, oh, AI has come out and you know, we're, we're getting to this point of AI and ML, but the problems are still the same. The vulnerabilities are still the same. And not and much also, has changed. Now, technology is making its way. I'm going to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I've given up on companies. I'm going to be honest. Sorry. I'm trying to focus on the 30 million small businesses in the United States yeah. that can't afford the likes of a big four accounting firm. And that's what that kills can't me. can't go out. Mm-hmm. That those are the ones that can implement my techniques. And yeah. also... What about the senior citizens? What about the kids? You know, those are the people, and I'm working now on a lot of different projects Mm -hmm. where we're trying to come up and develop something that, look, the schools cannot focus on technology. Mm -hmm. Why? Because everyone's struggling with reading. So what I'm doing now is I'm working with one individual to take my book, the 18 chapters, break it down into lessons that will help improve reading comprehension. And I know there's some former English teachers of mine rolling over in their grave hearing the guy like me is talking about that. But we have to start getting into that effort because I look out my window now and I live in a neighborhood, you know, there's a bunch of people in their 60s and 70s. I've had like four of them knock on my door because they were victims. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, my parents are a prime example. You know, I remember back probably, I was still in the military and my dad's uh, credit card got snagged by somebody online and they were booking flights to Saudi Arabia. Um, and he was shocked. He was like, I, how did this happen? Why did this happen to me? And I actually had someone recently tell me, well, they're not interested in me because I have nothing they want. But that's not true. Everybody has something that the attacker wants. And that's um, one of my... And, 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 you know, one of the things that I've determined is what I call the four truths about cybersecurity. And, uh, and this is after interviewing and dealing with a thousand victims. First of all, nobody ever expects to be a victim. Why would anyone want to target me? Like even your parents, like my mother would go like this. Oh, I don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Or I'm a small business, or I'm located in Nashville, or we're not, or we, I've heard it all. I've had companies tell me that they're not concerned because they're small. I had a $300 million company tell me they were a small business. I had a $9 billion company tell me that since they are not publicly traded, they're safe. And the cyber criminals do not care who you are. They don't care about the size of your business. You, there's no such thing as a threat profile anymore. You, oops, you have one of these guys are going to target you. Yep. Cyber truth number two, bad guys steal your stuff. The chances of law enforcement getting your stuff back is really challenging. Once your data is gone, it's gone. Unless, unless you're part of the critical infrastructure. And they will go after them for war. And that's my biggest complaint about the government right now is they're more concerned about critical infrastructure. But what about the hundreds of thousands of small businesses that get attacked that they don't do anything for? But and I'm going colonial- to be honest with you. 
Mm-hmm. I've had critical infrastructure. It doesn't matter if you are, because we're going to go through this. All right. Mm-hmm. Even if, okay. Even if you shut down critical infrastructure, the chances of law enforcement bringing you to justice is really challenging because you're located overseas. In the past six months, there's been more high-level prosecutions than I've seen my entire career. Now, here I am sitting with victims day in and day out for a decade. I can't get their stuff back. I can't put the bad guys in jail. I just want to quit. And then I have this epiphany. And then I realized that 90% of what I dealt with easily could have been prevented. And that was my mission my last three years with the FBI was to go out and speak to people and try to bring this message home. And I'd get criticized. I'd get people going like this. We're not the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We're not the Federal Bureau of Education. We're the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So the hardest thing I did is on my 50th birthday, I retired. I had a job I loved. Even with all the political stuff going on, I loved being an FBI agent. I would do it all over again. But I realized that after my career with the FBI, I can do more outside of the FBI to keep people safe. That's a passion project life. There's there's a lot of constraints when it comes to bureaucracy and and government. And I see that quite a bit. Like, you know, when the FBI went after uh, the the threat actors for colonial pipeline I was actually able to get some of that cryptocurrency back. You know, I sat and thought about it and I've done over the past 60 days, I've done 13 IRs intrusion responses. And out of those 13, there was no compensation. Um, and it's, it's sad to watch these companies risk, you know, losing everything and having to shut down because they don't have any kind of protection or because they've not been, proactive in their own defense but again you know they see on tv and they hear in the news about the government going after the money of of these you know threat actors that actually hit the colonial pipeline and then the small business owners are raising their hands going what about us what you know what why why is it only infrastructure i tell everyone now that you know to me that's not the right i think that's you know not the right attitude i'm going to tell everyone point blank government is not here to keep your critical infrastructure safe. It is up to you to understand this. Now I might get, and the Department of Homeland Security doing an unbelievable job now. The CISA website has every single thing you need to keep yourself safe. But we gotta start with the basics. We gotta start with the foundations. We gotta realize that, you know, I go out and I get hired by Fortune 500 companies. And I frame things because at the end of the day, when I'm sitting here with the C-suite and they refer to me as a cybersecurity expert, I am not an expert. I just happen to be the guy who answered the phone and had to deal with a thousand people and found the commonalities. I mean, on paper, I look brilliant. For my <laughs> friends that know me, I've, t- I've taken a ton of SANS classes. And even knowing what I know now, that still wouldn't have helped a lot of companies. It's the fact that we don't need to make the information security people better because it's the same stuff all the time. We need to make the business owners responsible for the risk. So what, what, do, you, what do you think about making businesses, once they've been compromised, making businesses be more forthcoming with the information and, and putting out there what happened, they've been breached and why they were breached and the, the situation and environment they were breached in. 
Because I think, to me, that, I think that sounds great in theory. Theory. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Let's, let's think about in the current political environment today. If the president said that you need to do this, what would half the country do? Nobody would do it. Okay. Even if you go back to the other administration and he made that, what do you think the other half of the country would do? Same thing. So it's getting to the point now where I just see that and I'm like, what are you going to do? Like, you know, you're going to find out that, you know, uh, I just, when we get to the point and we go, how did we get here? Uh, How do we go back in time? Have you seen the video called Solar Sunrise? No, I haven't. Go over that and put that in the reader's notes. I want you to watch that after this. Okay. It was the FBI's film in 1998 that I was taking in a VHS tape out with me and we were showing it and it just shows you what we were trying and not we, I was a brand new young agent, mm-hmm. but the brain trust of the U.S. government. And, you know, I like to make fun of the government more than anyone, but people we're thinking about this in 98. And if you watch this in 98, you will be blown away. Or if you read uh, Richard Clark's book, Cyber War, Cyber War, yeah, 2011. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's like this, uh, you know, and I've dealt with a lot of inst- a lot of big uh, breaches at a lot of universities. You know what I tell the universities now? Don't worry about it. Chinese stole all your stuff a decade ago. There's nothing left to steal. So yeah, the, the cyber warfare, the the book by Richard Clark, with the orange cover that, that was one of the books that really got me thinking. Um, And hearing him speak it at black hat one year was, was really interesting. Um, But there, there are some people in government that, that have that forward thinking and, you know, look at how we're failing as an industry. Um, But I, but I feel like people, industry just doesn't get it. I think that we're I've been all fighting that fight since 98. I go out. I just remember, Mike, I would sit here and I got the document and I'm going to send you these so you can put them in the show notes. The FBI's guidance on the business email compromise six years ago. And I'm going out and I'm speaking at financial conferences and I'm like, guys, you got to read this. You got to take steps. And now regularly we're dealing with multi-million dollar losses i've touched 150 million dollars worth of losses in the nashville area over the past decade and almost all of them could have been prevented and none of them were technology issues they were all business process issues had nothing to do with the information security person had nothing to do with the email filter because you can buy the best tool in the world you can have your artificial intelligence but when the third party's email who doesn't have two-factor authentication gets taken over the only thing that's going to stop that is a cyber secure mindset yeah and that that seems to be the buzzword for for this year is supply chain and i think that you know like you said this has been an issue for a very long time this isn't new and, no, absolutely. And that's why, you know, one of the projects I'm working on now, after uh, 2019, I go out and I'm getting hired all the time to go out to big companies, conferences, because I can make it entertaining. I can make people listen. I can tell great stories. I'm doing what I love. COVID happens. Mm-hmm. Things come to a crashing halt. I'm like, okay, I've got a pension. I'm hanging. And then I start doing things virtually. And then I start getting, picking up the work. 
And then I get big companies are paying me to go out and educate their employees. And they're paying me great money. And then they go, look, we want you to keep our employees safe in 45 minutes. I'm like, I can't even get through my introduction <laughs> of the snowstorms in Syracuse in the first 20. <laughs> I go, I'll do an hour and a half for you. I won't charge anything more. And they'd go like this. No, we only have 45 minutes. Will you want the money or not? I'd be like, okay. And then I realized that my message not, is not making its way into the hands of the people who need it most. It's not getting into the small businesses. It's not doing that. So I've been working on taking my material, putting it into a digestible fr format because I can teach you. Give me the time of a football game. I can show you how to reduce your risk by about 90% without spending money or being technical. How yeah. can I do that? Because... I touched a thousand victims and there were commonalities. So when I sit here and I tell people, and the name of my book is The Secret to Cybersecurity, which was me just getting the domain going, wow, how cool to get a book called The Secret. But there is a secret. The secret yeah. is that you don't have to be the next victim. Yeah. And I, that's why now, if you follow me on LinkedIn, what I'm trying to do every day is tell stories in my book because I'm like, Listen, don't buy my book. Just listen to me. Take this information. Go do it yourself. But so I'm building like this video course that eventually I want to make it into the hands of the small businesses and charge them such in the price of my book to put that information. Because in the world of the information security marketplace, that market segment is completely overlooked. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, people talk about cyber awareness and cybersecurity awareness, and you look at some of the courses they, they have out there, and it's an hour long of just nonsense that, you know, most people don't pay attention. They just click through it and they're done. Um, and I did that with, I did that yeah, too. We everybody. have to get these people to understand. And that's where, and I didn't, if I would have planned to do this when I retired, it went to work. But if yeah. I can teach people how to stay safe at home, if I can teach my kids why they need to put two-factor authentication on their gambling mm -hmm. and their crypto websites or the bad guys are going to steal every dime, they're going to want to do it at work. They yeah. want to do it on everything. But if you just say, you will do this because this is it, nobody will do it. Yeah, if the government mandates it, I think people would rather just not be even the problem. government if it's just the the company if it's just your employee. So that's where I've been able to get some really great success in changing behavior by also sitting here with business owners. Besides, I'll give you a perfect example. I I, I do a presentation uh, right before COVID to a group of 100 CISOs. Now, I'm a little intimidated here because these guys all have a thousand times more technical knowledge than I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, I better tell some really good, funny stories when they realize that, you know, I'm not your guy. And then I just start talking about SaaS platforms. And this is the time when the NFL Twitter accounts were taken over and people were losing their jobs and there was great embarrassment. And I asked this group of CISOs, how many of them are working with their marketing department to make sure that the Facebook accounts and the Instagram accounts all had two-factor authentication and nobody raised their hands? Mm 
Then I just started going through it and I said, hey, how many of you guys are using Salesforce? Everyone raises their hands. I go, how many people here are working with their sales team to make sure that's turned on? Nobody. And then I'm talking about this. And, and now I find out that when I go in and you know, I get brought into people and they go like this, Scott, we want an advanced level talk. And I go, I don't have anything advanced to tell you. I am not your guy. It's not an advanced level problem. That's the whole. No, and it's not. And they go, well, can you share anything with us that was secret in the FBI? I go, yeah, I had clearance, but what was secret? The the actual name of the threat actor group, you know, go look it up. Everyone has their own names for it. It doesn't matter. We need to start doing the basics. And after COVID-19, everybody is spinning things up into the cloud. Everyone's doing cloud-based assessments. Nobody's hacking clouds. No, they're going after the end users. Think about this right now. Almost 8.4 billion usernames and passwords on the dark web. How many of those usernames and passwords out of those 8.4 billion do you think are Apple IDs? Oh, most of them. Yeah, most of them. Let's even say it's 1%. (laughs) Like what's 1% of 8.4 billion? A lot. And out of those 8.4, and out of that number, let's say it's 1%, how many of those Apple users have two-factor authentication turned on? Oh, zero. How many Dropbox accounts do we have out there? How many QuickBooks accounts? How many Salesforce accounts do we have? Your information is being stolen. It's on the dark web. And now the, the Bureau of the Secret Service shows up to say your info is out there. We, we actually had a instant response we did just recently. And it's really interesting. Um, we had a client contact us and say, hey, look, FBI just delivered this report uh, that we're on a hit list. Well, I don't know if there's miscommunication with the FBI and the company or the company with us, but it wasn't a hit list. They've been compromised. And we spent several hours looking at how they're compromised and, and there wasn't a whole lot that we could do for them because they weren't one of our like security clients, whatever. Um, but it's interesting that, that it's the same thing all, all across the board. And it's not, you never hear of, it was a zero day. Zero days are, are very oh, few and far between. You know, we saw solar winds. That wasn't really a zero day. That was really bad coding. Um, then we look at what happened just recently with Log4j. Yes, that that's devastating. Um, a lot of people aren't ready for it. But there's, there's simple measures that go into place that some people still aren't doing. Update Apache. You know, if, if you have that, remove it. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and I've seen, let's go even simpler. I've seen organizations that still have open FTP. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And phone systems. Let me tell you about phone systems. I spent most of my early career going after Cisco phone systems because I could turn them into room taps. I could get into voicemail. I could log keystrokes all from their Cisco phone. And how many people enabled encryption on those devices? Zero. Because even Cisco would tell you, you do that and you degrade your quality of service by 25 to 30%. Who wants to do that? You know, I, I just don't know if we're at the point. There's just so many things that we could actually worry about. Mm-hmm. And you know, the only way we're going to prevent all cybercrime is to get off the grid. I'm not willing to do that. No. So when I start talking about like, what's my framework? What am I telling people? 
I need to set, get in, because here's, here's how I try to lay things out. The cybercrime problem is getting worse. We keep spending more money. The bad guys get your stuff. You're not getting it back. Law enforcement's going to have a hard time putting people in jail. That makes people depressed. But what if I told you that 90% of it could have easily been prevented? And so I just try to walk through a couple of things here. Mm -hmm. So let's make sure that we're completely, completely buttoned up. Let's realize that email, text messages, telephone calls is the main tool in the cyber criminals tool belt. Let's forget about the other 10%. Let's forget about the core critical controls. Let's go into the mindset. So we have to realize that you're going to get an email next week from Amazon the day before, the day before Christmas that your package has been delayed. Click on the link. You know, we have to know that that's going to be a scam. We have to realize that 66% of the population is using the same password for multiple platforms. If you do that, the cyber criminals will destroy your life. We need to identify what are the mission critical platforms that we have at home? What do we have that we don't want the cyber criminals to get in? Our email, our websites, our iPhone, our AT&T, all these different things. Mm-hmm. then we need to set up secure passwords. We cannot have the same password for multiple accounts. So we got to create things like that. Then even if you do all that, you need two-factor authentication. And even if you have two-factor authentication, then we talk about the business email compromise. And almost 95% of those could have been prevented. Then I talk about ransomware. And why do I talk about ransomware so much? Because Almost most of it is happening through email and the other 10% or the other part portions of it, RDP being open. We're still seeing network-based attacks. Mm-hmm. No and patching. We got to learn how to keep our family safe, our mm-hmm. kids safe. And that's probably the best chapters of my book is to keep your kids safe and keep your parents safe. And I want to give out my email for anyone here who makes it through the end of our discussion that... I will send you the shoot me an email and I'm going to send you those two chapters awesome. because to me at the end of the day, that's the most important thing that you need to do is learn about these scams. Keep your parents and keep your kids safe. That to me is what I'm trying to boil down. And when I sit here with people, I didn't teach them anything that I didn't already know, but you got to make it personal. Yeah. And, and I think too, like when you look at the threatscape now, you know, bring your own device to work used to be a really big pain point, but now the whole network is bring your own device because now you have companies that have transitioned their operations into people's homes. And not only do you have the infrastructure from your business, but you also have Xbox and PlayStation, iPads. And then you get a guy on Fiverr for $250 <laughs> in Sri Lanka, who's going to do amazing work. It's going to build you an app to get in and you can turn on your lights so you can do things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that that I see that a lot. Um, I was speaking to a DHS, DHS working group and talking to them about the new threatscape and the new threatscape is your own home, your surveillance systems, your cameras, your series, you know, your phones, your playstations, all that stuff. It's no longer, you know, the corporate email system. It's no longer the VPN. It's everything else that leads to that VPN. So we've completely reversed our operations. And now the biggest threat is the home and especially the kids because kids don't know about that. And I think if a two-year-old can open up an app on an iPad, 
people ask me, when is it, when is it old enough or when is it too young to teach people cybersecurity? I said, if they can take an iPad and click an application, know what that application does, then you start talking to them mm-hmm. because it's important. Yeah. You know. and, 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 and in the world, I handled crimes against children program for mm-hmm. my area of responsibility. There was no shortage of psychopaths who were trying to hurt children. Yeah. And now, years later, we're dealing with more kids are getting hurt through depression and suicide, mm-hmm. through sextortion, because now the kids are taking pictures of themselves. And, you know, I have a 16-year-old and 19-year-old. I had to really kind of stay on top of them. But one of the things I realized is if I didn't have these conversations with them at the youngest age, I mean, I have no idea what my kids are doing. Uh, parents say to me all the time, Hey, look, I read my kids text. It's really easy. Uh, my kids on the phone all the time. He's texting. He's going through an app. He's not going through anything that I have. So yeah. if you're going to install a WhatsApp or something else, there's no piece of software that's going to monitor that. Yeah. yeah. Unless you have someone in the Israeli intelligence, of course. Or if you download one, one of my APKs that I talk about in my talks, which, and that brings up another topic that we could probably expand on at some other time, but um, a lot of the archaic uh, technology like GSM and RF um, companies completely have forgotten about, and there's no defenses for them unless they live no. in a Faraday cage. I, yeah. rem- I remember I remember just dealing with issues with that on my last time I took a SANS class and was having one of my nervous breakdowns studying for a GAC exam was all of the RF attacks and how vulnerable GSM is and Bluetooth hacking and Zigbee. I mean, did that Zigbee, problem yeah. go away? No, it's, it's worse, actually. And, and, and since you're right down the road from me in Chattanooga, I'm the president of the InfraGuard chapter in Nashville. Nice. So I will definitely have to drag you up here uh, so we can you know, have this conversation live in front of a lot of people. Absolutely. You know, it was funny it, and I'll wrap this up really quick. Um, it was really funny when I first moved into the building I'm in, I'm in downtown Chattanooga, like in McClellan. Sleepy building. little town. Where are you? Yeah. I'm in, I'm in the uh, McClellan right next to the Tivoli and behind me right across the street is actually the FBI office on the fifth floor of this bank building. And uh, I, I've ch- been there. I've been there when we had the, uh, shooting of this Navy serviceman about seven years ago. I remember yeah. having to do that. Yeah. So I, I lived like directly across the street from the FBI office. And if they, people know my background, they know my interaction with the FBI as an informant and stuff like that. And it was a, a pretty tense time. And now they live right across the street. Um, but, you know, and we all grow up. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We all change. <laughs> Um, but man, it, it was a pleasure having you on, Scott. Now, this was today. such an awesome discussion, Mike. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'll give you, you know, we can talk offline a little later. I'm sure me and you will never be short of having a, there'll never be a short conversation between us. But, you know, sure. I just wanted to appreciate you taking the time for me and just telling your folks, I mean, listen, even if you're technical, I mean, it doesn't matter. Just improve the hygiene at home, improve the people you love, improve the kids, your family members, mm. and let's just try to make a difference. Absolutely. And that's that's what we, we plan on doing here at The Haunted Hacker, for sure. And that's kind of our motto is giving back and, and trying to uh, make the world a better place. Um, so before we go, do you have any final thoughts or, or questions for me about The Haunted Hacker podcasting community or 
anything? No, I think it's great. I, I, cool. you know, I love the fact that what you're doing and what Kim's doing and, you know, it's the grassroots effort. It's like, we need to get out. We need to share this information. We need to simplify this information. And that's why, you know, when Kim called me and said, Hey, can you do this? I'm like, absolutely. Um, because the government, you know, and I'm retired now, but it's the government's not coming here to save us. We have to look out for each other. And this is such an important time in the old days. A success for me was putting a bad guy in jail today. A success for me is when like a small business will go like this. I changed all my passwords and I put two factor authentication on everything. And I'm like, yes, exactly. That's a win. All right, Scott, um, take care. And uh, I'm sure we'll be speaking soon. And to everybody listening, stay tuned for the next Haunted Hacker episode. And if you want to get in contact with Scott, I will make sure to have that information available And until next episode, I will see you later and stay safe. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.